Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On our program tonight, police move in to clear the main anti-pipeline rail blockade near Belleville, Ontario after more than two weeks as political leaders clash over the protests and the government's commitment to energy development. On a day when Tech Resources withdraws its application for a massive oil sands mine in northern Alberta, blaming the political discourse in Canada over climate change and resource development. And on a day when an Alberta court says the federal carbon tax is unconstitutional, the Minister of Environment will join me to talk about all of that, and MPs will debate the government's approach. And we'll hear from the business sector about the impact of the growing uncertainty. The federal government introduces amendments to expand access for Canadians to medically assisted death. We'll look at what's being proposed. And our panel of parliamentary journalists will weigh in on the major stories of the day. But we'll begin tonight with the police action to shut down a two-week-old rail blockade on Mohawk Territory near Belleville, Ontario. This morning, the Ontario Provincial Police moved in to clear the anti-pipeline blockade erected in support of hereditary First Nations chiefs in British Columbia trying to stop the construction of the $6 billion coastal link gas pipeline across their territory, even though every elected band council along the pipeline route supports the project. Dozens of officers broke up the rail blockade, enforcing a court injunction obtained by CN Rail earlier this month. There were several people taken into custody, and protesters remain at the site tonight. Here's how video from the protesters captured the initial moments of the confrontation. They're moving, they're dancing, keeping warm. Okay, we got the liaison officers here now. This isn't nice either. We heard that before. Yeah. Okay. Over and we over. don't okay. give a fuck about what you got to say. Okay. You need at to this leave point. now. You leave. All of you. Get See out. You uh, leave, leave. You're on sovereign territory. Every single one of you. Unseated. Every <laughs> single one of you. If you guys leave, we'll leave. I want you all to understand. Yeah. You hey, came you here. Your don't ancestors don't came here. Sick, tired, and oppressed. Your ancestors came here wanting a better place. And our ancestors took care of them, taught them how to live, let them live on their land. What did your ancestors do when they got sick and 90% of them died? They violated their treaties. They stole, they killed, but they did it when we were sick. Fuck off, I'll stand where I want. I'm in Oklahoma territory. Yeah, me. In today's daily question period in the House of Commons, the Prime Minister faced questions about his handling of the anti-pipeline blockades and also about the decision by energy company Tech Resources, which announced late Sunday night it's abandoning its application to develop a massive oil sands mine in northern Alberta. 
Except, Mr. Speaker, these illegal blockades had nothing to do with reconciliation. If people in Ontario want to support reconciliation efforts, then they would listen to the members of the Wet'suwet'en First Nations who support the Coastal Gaslink Project. But the problem is, Mr. Speaker, is that there is now a clear playbook for radical activists to follow. And they know that the Prime Minister will do literally nothing as the economy is brought to its knees. So, knowing that there are future projects that may be proposed, what will the Prime Minister do differently in the future to prevent the types of layoffs and economic damage that these radical activists have caused. His very first question, sentence in that question, he demonstrated that uh, the leader of the opposition does not understand anything about reconciliation. Uh, uh, people in this House, Conservative Party leaders, do not get to pick uh, who speaks for Indigenous peoples. Uh, that needs to be done in a thoughtful, engaged way, and we demonstrated through this process that we can both protect reconciliation and protect Canada's economy as we move forward. At the end of the day, the buck stops with the Prime Minister. Yes. It's the Prime Minister's responsibility to de-escalate tensions. Now, he's continued to show, fail to show leadership. First, he doesn't accept that it was his responsibility. Right. Then he finally says, okay, there's a federal responsibility and urge patience, only to see that patience expire after three days, where he takes a page from the Conservative playbook and gives up on de-escalation. Yeah. Without ever having met with the hereditary chiefs, Mr. Speaker, when will the Prime Minister acknowledge that it's his responsibility to de-escalate, appoint a special mediator, and meet with the hereditary chiefs? The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Speaker, we have demonstrated every step of the way that we continue to work on the important uh, efforts of reconciliation. We continue to journey with Canadians, uh, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, along that journey. But it must be done in a responsible way. Uh, and when it became clear that there was uh, no uh, reciprocal openness to dialogue from the Wet'suwet'en hereditary uh, leader chiefs, uh, we uh, made, to, made a shift in our posture. But we need to make sure that Canadians from coast to coast to coast continue to support reconciliation and continue to be secure in their jobs and the goods that they need. And there's another development today that demonstrates the divisions in the country over climate change policies. The Alberta Court of Appeal ruled this afternoon that the federal carbon tax being imposed on Alberta since January 1st is unconstitutional. Courts in Saskatchewan and Ontario have already ruled in favour of the federal government on the same question. The Supreme Court will hear those appeals next month. Today, the Alberta Premier called for the federal government to immediately stop collecting the tax, and he also blamed the national government for the tech industry's decision to abandon the frontier mine. Albertans were deeply distressed by the announcement last night of Tech Resources Limited that it is uh, repealing its application before the federal environment minister uh, for a license to produce uh, the frontier mine in northern Alberta. Let me be clear. There is absolutely no doubt that this decision was taken in large part because of regulatory uncertainty and endless delays created by the national government, as well as the general atmosphere of lawlessness that we have seen take hold parts of our country and much of our economic infrastructure in the past three weeks. This should have been a straightforward and automatic approval after it went through nine years of exhaustive environmental review according to the world's most rigorous standards.
Well, let's bring in Canada's Minister of the Environment now. He is uh, Jonathan Wilkinson. He joins me from the foyer of the House of Commons tonight. Mr. Minister, good to see you. Thanks for being here. Not at all. Let's start with the court ruling in Alberta today. And uh, let me start by getting your reaction to that. We have two courts, Ontario and Saskatchewan, siding with the federal government on the constitutionality of the carbon tax. The Alberta Court of Appeal comes out in a 4-1 to ruling today and says, no, Alberta's right, it's unconstitutional. What's your response? Well, as you pointed out, uh, we've had rulings from both Saskatchewan and Ontario courts that have actually reaffirmed the federal government's jurisdiction here. Um, today is another step in the process. Ultimately, this will need to be decided at the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, I believe, is hearing, uh, hearing the uh, Saskatchewan uh, appeal in March. Um, and certainly the Alberta case will be part of the record that will be read into that proceeding. So we look forward to having it decided at the Supreme Court. And I think, you know, the federal government remains confident that this is within our jurisdiction. Mr. Kenny says today you should immediately remove the uh, federal carbon backstop on uh, the people of Alberta uh, while this uh, makes its way through the court process. What's your answer to that? Well, look, I, I think that uh, at the end of the day, what, what Canadians are looking for is for politicians of all political stripes to take action on climate change. I would tell you that the price on pollution, in our view, is as a market-based mechanism, is the most efficient way to, to reduce emissions and to do so in a way that actually addresses affordability. Right, but the court in Alberta today is suggesting you have no legitimacy to impose that tax on the people of Alberta right now. Well, I would say we've, you know, we've had two courts that agreed with this. Uh, pollution knows no boundaries. Um, it is, uh, in our view, uh, quite, uh, quite logical, and certainly uh, legally, we believe it is within our jurisdiction. Uh, obviously, we would prefer to actually have thoughtful and uh, and uh, and collaborative conversations with all pro provinces. I think, you know, the uh, Canadians told us that they want climate action in the last campaign. I think the market is telling us very clearly that it wants to see climate action. Um, and, uh, and I think it's incumbent on politicians of all stripes to actually sit down and figure out how we do that most effectively. Right. I will tell you that the most effective and efficient way to do that is through pricing of pollution. So that's a no. The carbon tax, uh, car federal carbon tax stays in Alberta. Uh, well, I, as I say, the, the Supreme Court is going to be opining relatively shortly. So I think, you know, uh, Mr. Kenny and, and uh, Alberta can certainly make their arguments in the Supreme Court. I'm much more interested in, in actually talking about how we move forward to address climate change, as I think Canadians expect us all to do. Let's talk about the, uh, the decision by Tech Resources uh, to uh, uh, withdraw its application uh, for that big oil sands mine in northern Alberta. I know you faced a big pushback in caucus from MPs opposed to this project. You were supposed to make a decision by the end of this week. So here's what I want to know. Are, are you happy with the tech decision not to proceed or disappointed? Well, I mean, this is a decision that was made by the company. We certainly respect uh, that decision. Um, and I'm sure it wasn't an easy one for the company to make. But, but I would draw your attention to the letter that the CEO of Tech uh, put out, which really said that they are looking for, and I think uh, you know, players in the energy industry are looking for aggressive action on climate change that enables continued clean, clean growth with respect to our, our resource sector. And, and again, I would say that's where we really want to focus. So you know, my yeah, job but Are is you happy or disappointed? with the fact that this is not going ahead. My, my job as Minister of the Environment was to frame up a number of options for Cabinet. Cabinet ultimately would, would need to make a decision, and once a decision is made, that is uh, the, the decision on the part of full Cabinet. Um, I, uh, I was working my way through the process and, uh, and working in accordance with the law, and so I was, uh, I was uh, made aware of the decision that Tech had taken, but I certainly didn't anticipate it. What were you going to recommend to Cabinet? That's, uh, that's a cabinet confidence, but I would say to you that my job was to essentially frame up a number of options that cabinet could debate. 
Uh, I was very public in saying that any of the options that were on the table would need to address environmental challenges associated with the project, most specifically some of the greenhouse gas issues. Um, and and uh, I will tell you that uh, all of the options that we were framing up would, would in some measure do that. Uh, you, I mean, in question period today, the government's taking a lot of heat over this tech decision, suggesting there's a, there's a straight line between blockades and uh, uh, what, what they would describe as uh, uh, confusion in terms of climate policy and application of climate policy and expectations for companies. In your view, why has tech withdrawn its application? What do you read into that letter? Well, I read into the letter. I mean, I, I would actually say that I, I would, you know, suggest to the to my colleagues across the way that they actually read the letter um, that the tech CEO put out. What he talks about is that uh, that the discussion in this country has become far too polarized. That we need to actually get to a point where we are taking aggressive action on climate change in a manner that facilitates continued growth and, and economic development. And uh, and they didn't want to be a football in that in that conversation. I understand. That um, and and I think that you know we need to get to the point where we are having politicians of all political stripes take serious um, perspectives in terms of acting on climate. Like this is not a political issue. This is a science issue. I mean, we can pretend that it's not real, but you know, it is a scientific fact. And and I think that you know what the what the company is saying. I think what the CEO of BlackRock and the investment community increasingly are saying is people need to take it seriously. Yeah, and we've seen evidence of, of again, so your government is, is focused, I know, on, on dealing with uh, the climate crisis and, and, and also how to marry that with uh, an improving economy. And, and a lot of people are concerned that this is now turning into an economic crisis too because a lot of investors are looking at Canada, looking at what's going on, and will probably look at this court ruling today out of Alberta and go, no thanks. How concerned are you about that? Well, I think that uh, certainly we are focused on actually enabling continued prosperity and economic growth and opportunity. But the precursor to that with respect to, uh, to investment in this country is actually taking active and aggressive action on climate change. And that is entirely what we are doing. We've always said that, you know, the environment and the economy and the model world need to go together. And that is absolutely true. You can bury your head in the sand and pretend that climate change isn't real. That is not going to get you anywhere except a declining economy and a, and a declining environment. Makes no sense. All right, Minister Wilkinson, always good to talk to you. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you. Well, let's bring in three members of Parliament to follow up on this uh, debate now and latest developments and uh, a number of developing stories in the country today. Let's go to the foyer of the House of Commons where you'll see Peter Schiffke, Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of the Environment, Stephanie Cousy is the critic for Families, Children and Social Development for the Official Opposition, and Rachel Blaney is the whip for the NDP. It's good to see you all. Uh, thanks for taking time to speak with me. Uh, we've just heard from Jonathan Wilkinson, so Stephanie Cousy, let me start with you. Um, your leader and your, your party in question period today pretty much drew a straight line today between uh, the tech resources decision to abandon its application for the frontier mine and the government's handling of, of the blockades. How do you believe those two things are connected? Well, I think we can even look previous to this, Peter, um, to the anti-energy ideology we've seen from this government. Um, they have sent the message over and over again through Bill C-69, through Bill C-48, that Canada is not open for business. Tech Frontier was definitely seen as the final line in the sand regarding the support for the natural resources sector. And there is absolutely no doubt that the Prime Minister's inability to take a position of leadership last week was the final straw in the decision 
decision for uh, the withdrawal of this project because, frankly, uh, corporations and industry just can't count on Canada right, right now but, but the, as a stable place to do business. The Tech Resources CEO, uh, Don Lindsay, in his letter to the Environment Minister, writes this. Investors and customers increasingly want jurisdictions to have a framework in place that reconciles resource development and climate change. This does not yet exist here today. And unfortunately, the growing debate around this issue has placed Frontier and our company squarely at the nexus of much broader issues that need to be resolved. That seems to suggest that all political leaders need to get their act together because uh, the conflict is driving away certainty and investment. Well, I certainly think that um, the events of last week did nothing to instill confidence in, in uh, investors outside of Canada. You know, but as for the environment, we as the official opposition have been stating throughout the entire processes of both C69, C48, and now the approval um, of tech, which of course did go through a rigorous uh, environmental evaluation and did receive approval, as well as from the First Nations um, in, involved. It received approval uh, on all of these fronts. Um, you know, Canada is known as a place where we have the most, eth eth excuse me, most ethical energy produced uh, within the world. And if the government wants to say that um, it's a result of not having a solid environmental plan, it's been five years now almost, Peter, that they have been in charge. They okay. should have put this environmental plan into place. Rachel Blaney, uh, how do you think or do you think all of these things are connected? The blockades, the failing energy projects, intergovernmental battles over uh, climate change policies. Wh what are your thoughts? Well, it definitely is a, a failure of leadership. If we look at what happened over the last week, what we saw at the beginning of the week was the Prime Minister finally admitting that there was a role for the federal government, which was very clear for a very long time. And then throughout the middle of the week, uh, stating very clearly that they were there to listen. And then by the end of the week saying, okay, we've done listening and we're gonna just put the onus, and that's a direct quote, onus on Indigenous leadership. So when you see that lack of leadership, it does create a, a framework of uncertainty for for everyone involved. We also have a government that keeps saying that the economy and the environment go hand in hand, and yet they're not providing leadership on either factor. So this is the, the challenge. As we see an economy that's changing because there is an environmental crisis that we need to start addressing in a more comprehensive and meaningful way, I think we're gonna see projects just like this one say, look it, until you have a framework that's gonna make sense, that's gonna give leadership in Canada and across the world, we're not ready to do business. And so it's unfortunate to see that happening, uh, but that's what the Prime Minister has led us to. Mr. Shifke, we, we have the blockades, we have uh, reconciliation on the rocks according to some Indigenous leaders, uh, the tech resources decision, the carbon tax ruling in Alberta today, uh, more questions about Western alienation popping up. What, what is happening, I guess, to the, to the grand bargain that, that was supposed to have uh, your government bring all these things together in harmony? What, what do you make of what we've seen in the last couple of weeks here? Well, I think we've been steadfast since the beginning about our plan to grow the economy and protect the environment. Uh, we've been very clear that we want to not only meet our Paris targets, but exceed them. Most recently, we announced that we want to ensure that Canada is carbon neutral by 2050. And we didn't just use words, we backed them up with record investments, a price on carbon pollution all across the country, uh, record investments in public transportation, a whole slew of other actions, over 50 to be sure. And what, the, uh, what you mentioned about what was mentioned in the letter by uh, Don Lindsay, the CEO of, of Tech, 
uh, was that we need greater certainty from other uh, levels of government, particularly the government of Alberta. Now, Premier uh, Jason Kenney came into power. He said he wanted to ensure that they kept the 100 megaton cap in place, yet since taking office, he's done absolutely nothing to show how they're going to go about doing that and reconcile uh, resource exploitation and advancing projects like tech while also ensuring that they keep within that cap. And that's what tech was looking for. And so we invite Mr. Kenney to the table. We want to work with the provinces. We know that's the only way we're going to be able to achieve our goals of meeting and exceeding the Paris targets. The invitation is open. We want to make sure we work with them because we know that's the only way we're going to be able to do it. All right. Uh, Stephanie Cousy, we, uh, let's talk about the blockades for a moment here and the action taken by... Uh, we, we, after a couple of weeks, the government tried the, the route of... Uh, two plus weeks, tried the route of, of peaceful negotiation. And now we have the uh, police involved and we see more blockades uh, popping up. Where do you think we're headed here? Well, I think that um, we are headed towards more poor leadership. Um, you know, we said as the official opposition, we were on week, pardon me, day 15 as of Friday within action until the Prime Minister made that announcement. Uh, but it was his lack of leadership, his inaction that allowed us to get to that point. We continue to believe uh, in the official opposition that we need to respect the rule of law, that all Canadians need to respect the rule of law. And this falls squarely uh, in the lap of the Prime Minister to ensure that this rule of law is respected. But, but how concerned are you that we, we saw people lying in the streets and blocking traffic in, in the capital today? Uh, another uh, a blockade popped up in, uh, in outside of Montreal today. There's a, a second uh, uh, demonstration where they're burning tires in the, uh, near Tyendinaga again today. So one wonders if you try to shut one down, are we just going to see more blockades and support? Well, this is exactly what we've been saying during question period in the House of Commons. I think it was best um, stated by my colleague Pierre Polyev, and that is that um, it, this lack of action from the Prime Minister is actually emboldening radical activists and encouraging further acts of, of, of anarchy and chaos, which will further disrupt um, our society uh, economically and, and beyond. So you know, we expect more action than this, greater action than this, um, but based upon what we've seen so far, I don't think we're going to get it. Rachel Blaney, where, where do you think we're headed here? We've, we've seen more protests uh, pop up. Uh, what's your view of how the, uh, you know, the government is handling this to this point? Well, again, it is a, a total failure of, of leadership on the part of the Prime Minister. As I said earlier, you know, the Wet'suwet'en people, the hereditary chiefs there, were asking to meet with the, the Prime Minister, and he kept saying, it's not my problem, it's not my problem. When we have issues like that, we need to see action that actually de-escalates, and what has happened is the exact opposite. We've been asking the Prime Minister to meet with the Wet'suwet'en chiefs and to appoint a mediator. Where is that mediator? You know, right now, things are getting out of control because the Prime Minister is choosing not to take responsibility, and when he doesn't take responsibility, people People are feeling unheard and frustration grows across this country. Obviously, Indigenous rights and title, it needs to be addressed. There's some really complex issues, but I can tell you that dialogue is always the way to solution and what the Prime Minister has chosen to do and what he avoided doing to the point where we are today is really unfortunate. I hope to see a mediator appointed very quickly. Mr. Shifke, what, what can you tell us about the, uh, I guess the way forward is uh, one way this is going to move, I suppose, is if there are these negotiations, conversations, discussions between your government and the hereditary chiefs. Um, what can you tell us? We, we don't seem to be hearing anything about what, when that might happen. Uh, the two sides seem far apart still. 
Well, you're absolutely right, Peter. The way forward is to have discussions with the hereditary chiefs. It's something actually the Prime Minister showed leadership on by saying from the get-go that we wanted to engage in dialogue and not to forcibly remove them uh, from those blockades. Uh, we've, after 10 days, the Prime Minister uh, made a choice and made a statement that uh, due to uh, the shortages of some key uh, products, such as propane for our farmers, such as uh, some water treatment uh, chemicals that weren't making their way to municipalities, uh, that he called to an end for the blockade. But the one thing that we always said from the get-go is that our goal is to advance reconciliation, make sure that we are continuing to open dialogue with the hereditary chiefs. That uh, hand is still out, uh, waiting for that to be accepted and to continue that dialogue. Well, that's part of the um, issue, right? You, you keep waiting. I mean, uh, there are overtures that take place, but so far, uh, do you know if there's any meetings set? And it's important to continue doing that and to continue but saying But do you know if there are any meetings set? Do you know if there's been any agreement to actually... I'm uh, not privy to okay. that information right now. The one thing I can say is we have two very capable ministers, uh, Minister uh, Miller and uh, Minister Bennett, who have engaged and are looking to continue engaging in dialogue. It's a priority for us. But at the same time, we also know that we need to react to protect our economy and make sure that Canadians are safe and they have access to the products they need to keep them safe. Okay. Uh, and so we're moving forward with that as well. All right. I want to thank you all for your time tonight. Uh, thank you. Appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. We'll talk again. Take care. Thank you, Peter. In Ottawa today, demonstrators marched on Parliament Hill and then spent most of the day tying up traffic as they crisscrossed the downtown core, all in a show of support for the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs opposing the coastal gasoline pipeline. By the end of the day, the Ottawa demonstration had turned into a peaceful sit-down protest in front of the Parliament buildings, right on the main street uh, in front of the Parliament buildings, blocking traffic. Across the country, Indigenous and non-Indigenous Canadians continue to pledge support for the cause of Indigenous land rights. CPAC's Martin Stringer spoke with one of the demonstrators, part of the Ottawa protest earlier today. Can I ask you your name? Uh, my name is Ganabad Gagne. What do you make of, I mean, you're all here in support of the Wet'suwet'en and of the blockades. What do you make of what's happened today? It disgusts me, quite frankly. Um, for how many weeks now have we been saying we are peaceful? Um, we are looking for a good way forward. Um, the hereditary chiefs have continued to come out saying they're willing to have nation-to-nation -nation talks. The goal at the end of this is peace. It is an agreement. It is the RCMP off Wet'suwet'en land. And it is a pipeline that does not go through Wet'suwet'en land. That doesn't seem like that much of an ask, considering Canada does not have jurisdiction on Wet'suwet'en land. And while we are here peacefully, while we are here sharing our truth, sharing our message, standing in solidarity, it pains me to know that the RCMP and OPP are out there using violence mm -hmm. as a way to get their message across. What do you make of what you, we heard the Prime Minister say last Friday? He said there's not been any dialogue. He says they've invited the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs to meet. He says they've been waiting for a week. He says there's still not any dialogue happening. And that seems to explain in part the OPP intervention. What do you make of that? I say I think he should consider why there is no dialogue happening. You cannot invade someone's land and then ask them to come to the table and negotiate while you are occupying their land. That is not a fair or right way to set up a series of communications. We will negotiate when the RCMP is off the Wet'suwet'en land because that is when the Wet'suwet'en are able to negotiate. That is when they can confer with their communities. That is when they feel empowered enough to make the decision that's best for them. What do you make of when people say, though, that the RCMP last Thursday had a sign of good faith? They said they, they were dismantling or they were uh, locking down, locking up their temporary detachment and they were just going to patrol the territory from Houston. 
What I would say is we've been going through things like this for 600 years now as Indigenous peoples, and we have had promise after promise broken continuously. So when the federal government or the RCMP extends a hand of good faith, that means nothing to us anymore. They lost our trust hundreds of years ago, and we are not going to give up what we have worked on and what the Wet'suwet'en people have stood for for so long on some action of good faith. You remove the RCMP, that's when we will talk, not before, not on an empty promise. What about people, you've heard the politicians here on Parliament Hill, and many of them have said uh, the demonstrations like this one and people are demonstrating in support of the Wet'suwet'en, and you sort of alluded to it, basically just don't want to see a pipeline, period, no matter what. Uh, even with negotiations, even with even with certain portion of the Wet'suwet'en supporting the pipeline. Um, I, I stand in solidarity with Wet'suwet'en, and I, if I can recall correctly, the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs did promote, propose an alternative route um, for the pipeline that they would have agreed to, and CGL said no to that. My perspective on it is this issue is not the pipeline does play a major role, but it's more about Indigenous sovereignty. It's about the numerous Canadian and international laws being broken in the actions of it. Um, the pipeline is a key factor to this, yes, but Indigenous sovereignty is what has been challenged for hundreds of years and what continues to be challenged, and that is what is going to set a precedent. What do you say to politicians? Some politicians last week said that people blockading were thugs and had almost no connection to the issue and to the Wet'suwet'en. How do you respond to that? Where is your empathy? I. There's a saying that I like, and it's that a million deaths is a statistic and one death is a tragedy. And I say that because we have been in the headlines for a number of weeks now. The rail blockades are entering their third week, so people are being easily desensitized to the issue. It has become only a headline. But what we all have to remember is that it's not a headline. These are people's lives. Maybe a last question. As people go to bed tonight, what do you tell them about where this goes from here, where this whole issue goes from here? I'd say this issue will go where it needs to go um, and I can't say what that is now. An hour ago the OPP were not arresting people in Tandanega. That situation evolved very quickly in that aspect. So I don't know where it will go other than it will go where it needs to go and that we need to hold this government accountable because if we don't then who knows what they'll do next. Okay, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you. Well, let's get some reaction now to, uh, from Canada's business community to the Tech Frontier decision uh, to withdraw its application for the massive oil sands mine in northern Alberta and the kinds of questions that raise, uh, raises about the economy in general and, and where we might be headed. Goldie Hyder is the president of the Business Council of Canada, and he's with me now. Mr. Hyder, good to see you again. Good to be Thanks here. Thanks for coming Thank in to talk about this. Uh, an important change in, in the Canadian economic landscape and a, and a big decision by this company. What is the message you take from, from the tech decision? And, Perhaps more importantly, what is the message you think it sends about the state of the economy, the message to investors? Uh, where do you think this puts us? Well, look, I'll let tech speak for uh, for its decision. I think their letter is quite clear as to what uh, what their thinking was. Um, look, business likes certainty. Business likes predict predictability. And what we have managed to do in the country, successive governments, this is not on this government at all, I think successful federal governments and to some extent provincial governments have created uncertainty in regulatory processes that for the longest time functioned just fine. Mm. Our foreign investment function, our, our, our infrastructure, uh, the National Energy Board and others that function, we politicized it. And what's happened at a time is when our governments have become really movements, by their own word, they call themselves movements now, which means they've become uh, hostage to some extent by the flavor of the month and what's going on and everybody's being pushed in a certain direction. It's creating a Canada that I don't recognize because it's hardening on the left and hardening on the right 
I firmly believe most Canadians are centrist. They are of the moderate social, progressive, economic policy, social policy, and they're lacking a voice. And what we're trying to do as business leaders is to say, don't worry about your political interests. That's not my problem. I'm worried about the country. I'm worried about the national interest, and I'm worried yeah, about... How hard is it for political parties? That's, that's a big ask of political parties right now going through, for instance, uh, Conservatives going through a leadership campaign. Yeah. I mean, if anything, we see a, a more of a hardening of positions well, than, look, than, than, a, than a call to... Uh, for want of a better word, to, to nation building or statesmanship. Well, either do your job or get out of the way and let others do, do the job as much as they can. But the fact is there's a critical role for government in our society. We expect you to play a leadership role in having a national purpose, a national vision, being a convener, bringing people together. You know, it worked really well in the USMCA agreement where we had brought together consensus from right and left and labor and business and others. Haven't seen that practice much in the other, in the other public policy areas. And what I think to your broader question about the economy itself is recognize the shock after shock after shock that we're experiencing. We had the CN rail strike uh, that, that took place for, for a period of time, uh, which had a ripple effect to the economy. Some say it might have done a bit of a, a dip to the, to the GDP. We have had to deal with the virus. You know, we're still in that virus situation today. Then we've had the blockades. Uh, we're seeing declining oil price for a national resources economy like ours. It's going to have a, have a ripple effect. We're still paying the price to some extent for our China uh, you know, fall over here. Uh, we may have an investment chill as a result of some of these decisions that are being made. That requires a finance minister and the government to say, I know we were planning a climate crisis budget, but, but perhaps there's an economic crisis that requires uh, addressing and, and yet, And yet, how do you, how do you I mean, you, you talk about, uh, you know, a Canada you don't recognize and, and parties, you know, things changing uh, and, and a process that worked well for so many years. Um, isn't the big challenge, though, that we've, we've now hit this intersection where uh, we have this conflict, and I, as much as politicians like to say the energy and the environment can go together, yeah. everybody's interpretation of how they go together is different. And that leads us, I think, to, to some of these challenges, right? I mean, for this tech decision is, and they make it clear in their letter, Don Lindsay makes it clear in the Jump letter, that you don't have a framework... <laughs> You know, the expectations we're not clear on. Uh, 20 years from now, we're not clear on what our responsibility is supposed to be. We do everything and we still end up here. Um, that's the big challenge, isn't it? Well, and the reason for that is, and it plays in part to what I've said about how historically governments would honor the agreements of previous governments. They wouldn't muck around with big things like free trade. You know, the Liberals may have ran against free trade in, in 88, but by 93, NAFTA was their idea because it was good for the country, it was good for the economy, and it was good for, for people. Today, what we have is the goalposts keep moving. And I think that's part of the frustration that was expressed in the tech letter is after you've met the federal regulations, after you've met the provincial regulations, after you've acquired the social license, including agreements with all indigenous communities in that project, a new government decides to move the goalposts. And you have to remember who all these governments are. And I say this with the greatest respect for all those who seek public life. But you, from Kyoto till today, whether it's Kyoto, Copenhagen, Paris, governments go to these international conferences and they're forced to make all kinds of commitments. No plans, Peter. No plans. And the ones who need to ex you know, implement those commitments are business. And who does that impact the most? Workers people of Canada, they're the biggest losers in all of this situation that's going on here because at the end of the day, this stuff all trickles down the economy. It's going to impact real people. It already is. You've put forward three ideas, you think, of, of sort of how we might move forward on this. What are they? 
Well, look, uh, something's got to give, right? The status quo is clearly not acceptable. Um, just to be provocative, we put it out there. But the idea is essentially this. Um, there has to be movement on both sides. We need to come back to where Canadians reside. I think Canadians are very sensible, very pragmatic in their thinking of how to reconcile the environment and the economy. Idea one, uh, carbon pricing, whatever you want to call it, whatever you're the user of it, it's here. It, we've supported it for over a decade. First business organization in North America to support carbon pricing. If we can get an agreement that carbon pricing is the model that we would go forward with in Canada, the, the trade-off is we agree that oil is a requirement for many parts of the world and that Canadian oil should be the last barrel of oil that's being used because we in Canada are actually conscious about the social license issues, about the environmental issues, and we're heavily regulated uh, to, to, to be so. And then the third piece of this, and the one that I think we're all uh, really struggling with here because it's, it's, it's a big issue, is Indigenous reconciliation we have to do something about it, and there are different pieces to this. The first piece is the, the federal government's role with Indigenous communities to figure out how to move on that reconciliation agenda along the Truth and Reconciliation Report, right? That's for government to government to do. The new problem that we face that I think is a revelation to many Canadians is who, who speaks for the Indigenous communities? We, we're, we're seeing that in this whole... Well, who speaks the, for them, right? Is it the hereditary chiefs? Is it the elected chiefs? And this is not for us to decide. This is for them to decide, because surely we can't have a model where everybody speaks for them. That, that doesn't work. Mm. And then the third thing, which I'm stressed about a little bit, is business has made tremendous investments in our relationship with Indigenous communities. We've had a recent uh, op-ed op in the Globe and Mail that talked about all the investments that businesses are doing in the hundreds of millions, billions of dollars to bring in Indigenous communities uh, to, with skills issues, with investment opportunities. I mean, there are three organizations, Indigenous groups, that want to take a majority stake in TMX. You know, so it's not that old relationship anymore. We have a modern relationship, and I sure hope that what's taking place today doesn't set us back, because that would not be a good thing. Right. So you, when you see, you see, a, do you see a direct link between the blockades and the tech decision? As much as it's not referred to in the letter, but is, is that is, is the atmosphere such now that companies have to look every which way to figure out what to satisfy? Look, it, it pains me to say this because you won't find a prouder Canadian than I am. But when I travel abroad and I ask about perceptions of Canada and the impressions of Canada, the things I hear are deeply concerning. Do I reiterate them to my government colleagues and others? Yes, I do, because they have a right to know. I'm not interested in talking down investment or talking down Canada. We want the investment. We want Canada to be prosperous. The issue is policies matter and certainty matters. And what we have right now is, as I said, a polarized points of view at both extremes here when the vast majority, I would say the silent majority of Canadians, have totally reconciled the energy and the environment and want us all to get on with it. And that's the other so point. What, so what do you hear Let's those, work together. What do you hear in those travels? Well, look, I mean, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, one, one, uh, one uh, CEO said to me in, uh, in, in Asia, are you one country or 10? I said, it's actually worse. We're probably 13 and maybe more. And, and that's the perception issue. I've met others who have said, you know, instead of investing, we're looking at how to divest our assets. We're concerned about the social license issues because we just don't know when enough is enough. And that is, to me, the politicization of this issue. When you allow cabinets, and again, this is on both governments, right. when you allow cabinets to override a 9,000-page process with a regulator, on what basis are you doing that? And remember, the life of these applications, Peter, as you well know, maybe over three governments. Right. How is business investment supposed to calculate political risk nine years out? 
seven years out. I don't know who the government is then. We mucked about with a system that worked and we need to fix it because the status quo is taking us down to a very bad place and it's going to hurt the country. But more importantly to me, it's going to hurt real people. And that's what this is about. All right, Goldie Hyder, always good to get your perspective. Thanks for that today. Thank you for having me, Peter. Well, in other news today, the NDP has tabled a bill calling for a universal pharmacare plan. The bill would give the federal government the authority to negotiate a funding agreement with the provinces since they would have to administer the plan, of course. A national pharmacare plan was a centerpiece of the NDP election campaign. The Liberal government is also promising a pharmacare plan, but uh, Jagmeet Singh, the NDP leader, says the government's moving too slowly. This proposal is so achievable. We could bring in, in place a universal Medicare uh, medication coverage plan. It can work. And we're laying out a framework for it. The Liberal government talked about this. Prime Minister Trudeau promised it. He promised universal pharmacare. Well, now here's a chance to make it happen. I'm going to put pressure on the government to say it's not enough to just talk about it. Pretty words are not good enough. People urgently need pharmacare. The Liberals have promised this for 23 years. They failed to bring it forward. We're now taking a concrete step to show this is how it's done. The Hoskins report was commissioned by the very same Liberal government. We're providing a path to achieving the first step, which is this legislation, and now we need the government to back it up. And the federal government today tabled amendments to Canada's laws on medically assisted death. The changes would expand access to assisted dying even if a death is not reasonably foreseeable. The government's responding to a Quebec Superior Court ruling that found sections of the law unconstitutional because they were too restrictive. Let's get some of the detail on the government's proposals today. David Lametti is Canada's Minister of Justice. He joins me from the foyer of the House of Commons this evening. Uh, Mr. Lametti, good to see you again. Thanks for being here. Good evening. Uh, why have you decided the way forward is to create two separate tracks uh, on the made issue, one where death is reasonably foreseeable, that'll be treated one way, and one where that may not be the case? Well, there were two good practical reasons. First of all, we've accumulated a great deal of experience over four years uh, with the previous standard in which, in which uh, the uh, reasonable foreseeability of, uh, of death was a criterion. Um, so doctors, uh, nurses, other health practitioners, uh, and just the health establishment generally had, had, and patients too, and people, had developed an ease uh, with, with the criteria. And the second practical reason is that still covers the vast majority of cases. Most of the, most of the cases where people will seek medical assistance in dying uh, are cases where they are, uh, where they are at an end of life scenario, uh, terminal cancer and that sort of thing. So for, for practical purposes, uh, we wanted to keep what was familiar. And then of course we've added, uh, we've added another uh, set of possibilities based on, the, uh, on what the Truchon decision required us to do. Okay, let's get into some of that. What, what changes are you making uh, to make this process easier for people where death is reasonably foreseeable? Well, we have two of the criteria that we thought four years ago would, be, uh, would add a period of reflection or would, would somehow help ensure that, that uh, the process was, was fair and informed and independent actually didn't turn out that way. So having two independent witnesses to effectively watch the person sign uh, the, the, the request it turned out to be a barrier. A lot of older people living in, 
in institutions, for example, often didn't have uh, family or others uh, who they knew right. uh, who could act as independent witnesses. So they'll only have to have one witness now. That's right, and, that, and people felt that was a barrier. And we we're also proposing that the person can actually be someone who works in the home. Still can't be anyone with any kind of legal interest in the person, uh, so they can't be an heir or that sort of thing, the legal standard. But it could be a, it could be a, a practitioner who's not their doctor, it could be a nurse or, or some other worker in the home who's not their doctor. Mm -hmm. And the second was the 10-day uh, reflection period. Um, people who've made their decision to seek MAID in an end-of-life scenario do so uh, after a great deal of, uh, of thought and, and discussion with, with their doctor, with their nurse. Um, the additional 10 days, all it did was add, quite frankly, suffering. Uh, some people wouldn't take their, their pain medication uh, in, order, uh, in order to not lose uh, their ability to, to make that final decision uh, 10 days later. Mm -hmm. um, others lost their capacity in the meantime. So we, we felt that that was a barrier. Everybody around the round tables told us that it was a barrier, that it wasn't serving the purpose, and so we've taken it out. So you make a decision, you don't have to then uh, you know, make that decision again 10 days later. Well, you, yeah. you, do, have to, you, you do have to make a, a, a final decision again, but there wasn't a minimum 10-day period right. again. It could, be, it, could be, it could be almost immediately. You are adding safeguards, though, for people who want the choice of medically-assisted death, but where that death is not immediately foreseeable. What added safeguards are you, are you putting in? Well, there are three in particular. Uh, first is a longer period for assessment, so that doctors uh, can, can assess the, 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 the patient properly. And secondly, uh, there are a number of proactive pieces of information that we want uh, we want doctors to make their patients aware of and discuss and reasonably consider. So palliative care, the forms of treatment that are available, the forms of support that are available, really in order to make this a truly, a truly autonomous and, and informed choice on the part of the person. Um, and, uh, and so in, in having those kinds of safeguards, that's quite helpful. The other thing is we, we of the two uh, of the two uh, medical uh, people who are assessing uh, the person's file, that's always been the case. We want one person to have, uh, have some expertise in the condition. Uh, now, it doesn't mean that, they are a, uh, that they're a specialist. It can be another medical practitioner who's, who's had, uh, who has familiarity right. with the condition. We didn't want that to be a barrier okay. in remote areas of Canada. Why aren't you going as far as allowing advanced directives? A lot of people have been pushing for that. For example, someone who's diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease who may want to choose the timing of their death before they get into a, uh, get to a point where they can't. Why not advanced directives? Well, there's still, uh, we, we think we're not, uh, we, we, there's still more study that needs to be done. Uh, we, had, uh, we had the Council of Canadian Academies prepare a report on advanced directives. Uh, that report uh, was not unequivocal. Um, the, and that's what we heard around the tables, too. There are times when a person, even though they think uh, and they say at the outset that if they ever reach a certain stage of Alzheimer's, they would, they would prefer not to go on. Uh, as they get to that stage, uh, their doctors and their families see someone who's actually not unhappy with the situation that they're in, in some cases. And so it's a complex, it's still a complex issue. We still need further reflection on it as a, as a society, and, and we need to hear more from experts. Okay, there, the result, there have also been people suggesting, look, it's, it's time to open this process up to, to, to people who suffer from a mental illness and who, who don't have an underlying 
physical medical uh, condition that may uh, be leading them to a, a foreseeable death. But uh, you haven't gone there. You've, this is not a process that's yet open to people suffering from a mental illness with no underlying uh, physical medical condition. Uh, uh, correct. And, and again, the reasons are similar. It's, it's very complex. We're, we're better understanding uh, mental illness. Uh, every, every day uh, we understand more about mental illness. But as, uh, as, a, as a society, we still need to reflect further. There are some mental illnesses where the will to die is one of the symptoms. Um, and we'll, we need to put in place, uh, before we move on mental illness, uh, a, a series, I think, of uh, we need to have a series of reflections um, as to the, the proper framing of that. Uh, there wasn't consensus on that point as we moved across Canada. All right, so now you, you, uh, you enter the legislative process in Parliament, hoping to pass it, I know, as soon as you can. Um, and uh, this is all with the uh, knowing that you're, you've asked, I think you're in, are you in court tomorrow asking, arguing extension on uh, Tuesday for the four month extension to. Uh, hold the Quebec ruling in abeyance, I guess, till you can try and get these changes through Parliament. That's correct. All right, That's David, David Lemetti, thank you for your time tonight. Good to talk to you. Thanks very much. Time now to bring in three colleagues from the Parliamentary Press Gallery to uh, discuss the key stories of the day, and it turns out there are a number of them. Tonda McCharles yeah. is a parliamentary reporter with the Toronto Star. Yeah. Joel Denis Bellamas is the Parliamentary Bureau Chief for La Presse, and John Iveson is a columnist with the National Post and Parliamentary Bureau Chief for Post Media. Good to see you all. Uh, quite a day. Mm -hmm. uh, we have the police moving in on the blockades. We have uh, tech industries backing off the, uh, the big mine project in Alberta, and we have Alberta, uh, I think, a surprise to a lot of people, uh, winning its appeal uh, against the federal carbon tax with the Court of Appeal in Alberta ruling four to one for mm -hmm. Alberta mm -hmm. after Saskatchewan and Ontario courts had ruled in favor of the federal government. Uh, what do you make of all this, Tonda, and what the sort of state of things in the country? Uh, wow, that's a huge <laughs> question. Um, certainly the events of the last few weeks show that the governments can't get their act together, the governments of First Nations can't get their acts together, and now the courts of the country, the superior appeal courts in the country, can't even agree on a pretty crucial legal question. So uh, when it comes to the big bargain of the carbon tax and carbon pricing, uh, which has kind of pitted this government against the energy sector, against the Conservatives, and, you know, lost them friends amongst indigenous uh, people because it's not they're not advancing their concerns mm. either uh, a lot of it's going to i think end up at the supreme court around the carbon tax plan that and whether that's the way to go forward we're going to hear a, a case next month at the supreme court of canada mm. they're hearing saskatchewan's appeal because um, saskatchewan and ontario have lost at their courts um, the claim that only provinces can decide these things that in fact, this is, those courts ruled that right. Ottawa gets to decide. Um, so look, I think it's, it's all coming to a head. It is, I think, inflaming tensions all mm. over the country. I just would hesitate for us to sort of weigh in and fan those flames and say, you know, the country's breaking apart. Right. Uh, I think these right. are processes that are working their way along and uh, hopefully at some point the politicians and the indigenous leaders will all sort of come to have a, a come to Jesus moment and figure out if they can get along. It, it does seem to be a, a, a perhaps a, a more dangerous intersection Joel Denis that we're yeah. coming to and that we're yeah. in than we've seen yeah. for some time. And, and the cause of it is the debate about the necessity to build or not big uh, energy projects. That's the big cause of it and I think it is 
provoking sort of a uh, exi existential crisis in Canada, relationship with First Nations, relationship with provinces, relationship with, uh, you know, uh, provinces, and also the duty to fight climate change, but also promote a sound economy. And this is all coming up to a, 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 at, a, at a time when Mr. Trudeau was hoping that it would have more calm waters after, you know, a series of cascade of international events that almost uh, threw his governance agenda off. Now, this coming from domestic issues is also throwing his agenda off the, off the table. Yeah, what do you think, John? Well, I think the, the, the Conservatives and Jason Kenney have leapt on this as a failing failure of the, the Trudeau government. They politicized the regulatory process. They uh, killed this thing by delay. But if you read the letter that came from the tech resources chief executive, what he actually talked about was the need for governments to get their yeah, There seems together. to be enough blame to go around. Exactly. Yeah. The need for governments, plural, i.e. in this country there is no clear policy on climate change. And as a result, we are seeing a f not only a flight of existing capital, but no new capital coming into the country. And a lot of big players now saying we're not going to invest in the oil sands. BlackRock, the world's biggest asset manager, has said that it's not going to invest in the oil sands. Uh, HSBC, a lot of big insurers, they're, they're all pulling out. The Canadian banks and insurers are being kept there only because I think Jason Kenney's telling them we'll boycott your, your, uh, your companies if you do anything. And nobody's really speaking for Canada. They're, Kenney and Trudeau are too busy having this internecine conflict to, for anybody to turn around to the, to the international markets and say, look, we've still got a good story to tell. You know, we've got, we do have high emissions, but they're coming down uh, intensity per barrel, and it's a very regulated market. We don't do things yeah. that are happening elsewhere. But we don't, what we don't have is certainty for those investors and certainty around climate action plans. And that's right. what's at the heart of that court decision, yeah. and that's what tech resources in that letter said was the problem. They said they agree with carbon pricing. They agree that there has to be action taken to meet targets. They want to be able to invest with that in mind and to export what they say is energy that will basically displace, yeah, replace dirty well, energy yeah, it, it elsewhere. Seems, it seems to be an indictment, that letter of policy make, makers yeah, exactly. in this yes. country about, yes. look, at what do you want us to do? I mean, yeah. you're fighting over carbon yeah. taxes. You can't tell us uh, in terms of a climate change plan, what the shelf life of our our project might be, what do you expect from us over the 40 years that a project might like? What 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 are the mitigation measures mm -hmm. we take? How do they count in the plan, and and what our responsibility is? And if and if you're an investor, you're looking at that and going, yeah. Exactly. And you know, today, sir, go ahead. You've got different level of governments fighting policies uh, that you know is supposed to uh, help fight climate change. Provincial governments fighting federal government. You've got First Nations fighting the federal government as well. So. You've got a massive conflict over big energy projects and what signal does it send to investors not only here but also abroad that Canada maybe is not the right place to invest right now because we don't know what the rules will be to our project and that is causing some some I think um, investors to rethink their own investment in Canada. And the, you know, the voice of business in Canada, the Canadian Chamber of Commerce today, called for all of these regulatory processes to be uh, depoliticized and that there has to be certainty once a regulating body says, yeah, gives an approval for a project, it should be able to proceed. Yeah, Goldie Hyder from the Business Council made the same point earlier. That, that get your but act under, together. But under the, I just want to point out, though, that this is the thing. 
successive governments, both conservative and liberal now, have left the power to override regulations or regulatory decisions in the energy sector with federal cabinets. So it is by its very nature ultimately a very political decision and any opponent to a project knows that if they want to fight it, they got to start working the caucus and the cabinet and that's happened. That happens uh, happened under the Harper government, mm -hmm. is happening under the Liberal but government. But as, as, as the investor types will, will point out, that's great and we can do all that and then a government changes and comes in with exactly. a whole different plan and we're exactly. back you know, all the stuff we thought we'd figured out gets unfigured you know I mean in, in Britain they came to a consensus on climate change uh, I think under the Cameron government you know 2010 to 2014 they all signed on to the same project and they're still signed on to it despite you know whatever government comes in Theresa May before she went out her last policy was was on climate change uh, Boris Johnson's now signed up for uh, uh, no emissions in, in cars by or no no gas cars by 2035. That consensus allows people to plan forward, and they've done pretty good things. Now the ultimate test to me will be how the government handles the TMX file. Uh, we I, we we can expect unrest in British Columbia from First Nations who still oppose that project to try to derail it. And if the government, but you see the government in that in that case, the government well, they're, cannot. They're aligned on this one, so that no, but, might that might actually work. Right. Yeah. But and they can also get on the phone of the shareholder and say, "Please don't abandon the project." Oh, by the way, we're the shareholder. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that but, does provide a certainty that you don't get another it's project. It's not as if it's impossible for for the government of Alberta and the government of Canada to get along on policy. The the um, the large emitter scheme, which Alberta had already had in place. The, the feds take, took a look at it and said, yeah, that's good enough. We'll, yeah, we'll, li we'll live with that. Now, Except they, that it yeah. was only in place for a year. It was not going to be a long-term plan. And, and, and then the far federal carbon tax was going to have to, the backstop was going to have to kick anyway. Not, the, the, that's for, not for large emitters. For large emitters, The, the large emitter scheme is, is one that the Alberta contrived yeah. and the feds have agreed to. You know, in theory, the, the, if Alberta came up with its own carbon tax for, for taxpayers, uh, the federal backstop wouldn't have to kick, kick in, but of course it's politics. So, well, now it it, it, uh, it sounds like maybe complicated. Now. And with the court ruling out of Alberta today, it sounds like the whole thing may be thrown up in the air again. Now, again, while we yeah. figure out okay exactly who has jurisdiction to tell us what to do on climate it's and so policy. It's so Canadian, eh? <laughs> We're out of time. Thanks very much. Thanks, thank you. That is all for another edition of Primetime Politics on CPAC, the Cable Public Affairs Channel. I'm Peter Van Dusen in Ottawa. Thanks for watching.